Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word is living and operative. And I pray by your Holy Spirit, you'll give me words to speak well of Jesus, whose name I pray. Amen. Last Sunday we were in 1 Peter 4 and we were at the first six verses and we saw how Peter gives instruction on how the church, how believers are to relate to the world. And he brackets his instructions between two poles. In verse 1 he talks about Christ who suffered and provides an example that we are to imitate. But then in verses 5 and 6 he speaks about Christ's return at the end of the age to judge. And between those two poles, here is how we are to relate to the world around us. And picking up on that note about the return of Jesus, Peter continues in verses 7 through 11, our passage this morning, to speak to us about how we are to relate to one another within the fellowship of the church in light of the end of all things with which he begins his discussion in verse 7 here is how we are to live Jesus is coming do we live like we believe that? because otherwise it makes a nonsense of what we're doing It makes a nonsense of everything unless we believe that Jesus is coming back. So what? Jesus is coming back. And well, I believe Peter mentions four exhortations in particular that spell out how we are to live in light of the end. I've probably said it before, but one of the last last meaningful conversations I had with Peter Maiden was about 18 months ago. We were walking. I can still remember where we were walking. And he just suddenly turned to me and said, James, when did you last hear a really good sermon on heaven? When did you you last hear a sermon on heaven? And it was a challenge to me. Because we we, we can preach a lot of things and it's good to preach from the word systematically but it's good to be reminded that Jesus is coming back so what first of all Peter talks about how we are to handle ourselves in verse 7 he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers how we handle ourselves then how are we to treat one another? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So first of all, how we are to behave ourselves, then how we are to treat one another. And then in verse 9. How does that love gain concrete expression in our fellowship? Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I have to, you know, slight caveat there, we are in COVID-19 days. I'm sure we'd love to show hospitality more than we are able to and more than it is sensible. But even so, it's there as an expression of our fellowship. And in verses 10 and 11, 
how we are to do ministry in the local church. Verse 10, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. So in the light of the end, in the end of all things, this is how we are to handle ourselves, how we are to treat one another, how we are to use our homes, and how we are to do ministry. An author I read somewhere, and I can't remember where, said that the first sentence cannot be written until the last sentence is written. Which is, if you're writing a novel, if you're a budding novelist, you need to know how it ends before you start. So that everything can unfold in light of that conclusion. J.K. Rowling, who is the uh, famous author of the Harry Potter books, who actually is under much attack at the moment because of um, her, her, her stand, not, not, not necessarily a Christian stand, but a stand against the stupidity that has been promoted about transgenderism. She had an idea for her books on a train one night in 1990. And she began writing her first book, which is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, that very night. But she began writing the last chapter of the last book at the same time. In other words, the whole thing is mapped out. And I've never read any of the books, but I'm just saying there's a great example of a very popular novelist who wrote the last chapter of her last book as she wrote the first chapter of her first. So the whole time she was writing thereafter, the conclusion was always in mind. She said to one interviewer, these books have been plotted for such a long time, and for six books now, they're all headed in a certain direction. In other words, good storytelling develops the plot with the final chapter in view. And that is precisely how Peter is saying we should live our Christian lives. How the story of our Christian life is to unfold must be with the final chapter in mind. Because it has already been written. The end of all things is at hand, verse 7. Therefore, here is how I want you to live. The end of all things is pending. And here are the implications for your daily life and conduct. To be clear, Peter isn't suggesting that when he wrote this letter, he was under the impression that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. That's not what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand. Rather, he is saying since the life, death, resurrection and ascension to reign of the Lord Jesus... The last days has begun and shall, begin, shall continue until Christ returns. We, we are living in the last days. And its light is to radiate every moment from the empty tomb until his final return. Every moment of our lives is to be lived with the knowledge of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. That is how Christians have been have been called to live since Christ ascended in light of his imminent return. So how do we write the book of our lives with the final chapter in view? 
What does it look like to live in light of the end of all time, in the end of all things? Now, Peter works from the inside out. He starts with how we should handle ourselves, how we should treat one another in our attitudes, our heart affections, how that should be displayed in the practice of hospitality and all the way out to the varied ministries that we're to exercise within the fellowship of the local church. All of which tells us that for Peter, the light of Christ's coming, the certainty of his return, is to be all-pervasive. It is to exercise a pervasive influence, not a superficial one. The return of Jesus is not incidental to the way that Peter thinks about his ethics, how he thinks about the way that Christians ought to live. And I think that I found this to be personally enormously challenging because, to be honest, I do not always think about the end of time. I confess the truth. We've just done it this morning. I speak about it a lot, the doctrine of Christ's return. But I find for myself it is too often a dormant truth in my Christian life. It doesn't exercise hardly any influence in how we make decisions from day to day. And that probably may be true for more of us. Peter is writing to challenge that way of thinking. He wants to awaken in us a robust awareness that the end of all things is at hand. It affects what we do and helps us live today in light of the end of time. So number one, how we're to handle ourselves, verse 7. The first thing he tells us should be true of us given that the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. In verse 3, he described the world and worldliness by talking about sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sounds like a whole list of COVID breakers right there, doesn't it? But that's the pattern of the world both then and today. And by contrast, he says that if you have a clear sense of the certainty of Christ's coming, there should be a self-control. There should be a sobriety, a self-possession that characterises a believer. A believer shouldn't be governed by the enslaving lusts and passions that characterise the world. But clear-minded sobriety, knowing at the end of all things is at hand. You sometimes hear people say when they receive a diagnosis that presses to the front of their attention the reality of, the, the reality of their own mortality, you sometimes hear them talk about how it brings things into a new perspective. Not only Christians, I'm talking about generally. It changes the way they make priorities, some of the ways they make decisions, if they're more aware than ever of their own mortality. Peter is saying that should be true of every believer all the time because we live in light of the certainty that the end of all things is at hand. So there should be a sober-mindedness, a self-control that marks us for the sake of your prayers, which is an interesting connection. Because I rather suspect for many of us the certainty, the the inevitability of the end could tip us towards fatalism defeatism, 
It is inevitable, so we kind of give up. That's not Peter's view at all. For him, the certainty of the end, the coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead, is a sober-minded call that produces prayer. Peter says it, it calls us to self-control, sober-mindedness mindedness unto prayer. The fruit of this mindset is prayer. Not fatalism, not defeatism, but an earnest prayer for life. Oh God, help me live for you with new singleness of mind in the days that remain to me. Oh God, open up doors for the gospel. The time is short. So many have never heard. Oh God, save the lost, build the church, extend your kingdom before the appointed hour arrives. So there's urgency, gravity, sober-mindedness that produces pleading prayer. Do you, do you pray like that? Do you pray for the lost? Because that's part of the call that Peter places on us as we live in light of the end. Secondly, how we're to treat one another. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In light of the end, when it comes to our relationships with one another inside the church... The obligation to love earnestly is a constant, urgent necessity. Keep loving. And the word earnestly is not so much emotional intensity as it is tenacity and determination to persevere. No matter the circumstances, to cling to the priority of love within the fellowship of the local church. Do not let love ever slip from top of your priority list. This is what he is saying. That's why he says, above all, keep loving earnestly. Above every other concern, if the church is to survive. And we've seen in Peter's letter, clouds of persecution and opposition beginning to gather on the horizon for Christians. Hard days are coming. How will the church survive? We should pray about that even now with uncertainty about meeting. You only just have to look at social media to see the division that this has already caused amongst brothers and sisters, sadly, across the world. Meeting or not meeting, singing or not singing. But we will survive if we love one another and love one another earnestly. Love is never to be an afterthought in the fellowship of the church. Love like this, Peter says, is a matter of survival. And notice the motive that he affixes to his exhortation to keep loving earnestly. Why should we do this? What are the benefits? Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter has Proverbs 10 verse 12 in mind. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offences. We live in a world that this is so countercultural to. People seem to love to hate each other. What can I hate about somebody next? People seem to wake up saying, what can I hate or who can I hate today? But love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean if you love me, you'll look the other way no matter what I do. Absolutely not. 
And it doesn't mean that the church is the place that excuses wickedness or covers things up. That doesn't mean, that is not what it means. We get some help from understanding what Peter does mean when we pay attention to Proverbs 10 verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, love covers many offences. Whatever it means, it is the opposite of hatred that stirs up strife. Peter, I think, is saying, love does not take the bait. Love does not respond when provoked. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love doesn't make things worse. Love doesn't perpetuate the cycle of tension and division and strife by responding to hurt feelings with more wounding words. And round and round and round and round and round and round we go. Now love breaks the cycle. Love says, I will be patient. I will be kind. I will not make a list of things that have been done against me. The Bible says that. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. But how many times we trump them out? We trundle out the same old list every time. Even though the Bible says we should not. Sometimes biblical Christian love requires us to confront one another, to challenge and to exhort, to speak truth in love. But love endures all things. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not looking for that pound of flesh. Christian love does not demand redress. It holds no grudges. If you remember, Peter is writing to churches and saying, you should be a community of elect exiles. I like to think of it, if I'm allowed to use the word, a colony of heaven planted on the far shore of this world. So he insists that the inner dynamics of church life, of Christian relationships, reflect the same kind of love we see in our Lord Jesus Christ, who as we are very wonderfully happy to affirm, he loved us and gave himself for us. So look in how we treat one another. People who do not know Jesus can see the power of grace shaping our daily behaviour. We forgive one another, having been forgiven. We love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. So let us ask ourselves, in light of the teaching of this part of God's word, when last did I go and seek forgiveness from someone I know I wronged? When last was I quick to forgive those who have wronged me? When last did I get the help I needed to get past my grudges and too long-cherished wounds? When last did I resolve when someone's tongue cut me to the bone not to take the bait, not to give as good as I got, but to remember that a gentle answer turns away wrath? Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers a multitude of offences. Love covers a multitude of sin. We're called to love because Christ loved us. 
So in light of Jesus coming again, it affects how we handle ourselves, or to be sober-minded, which leads us to prayer, and we're to treat each other with love. And thirdly, Peter speaks about how we should use our homes, how we should use our houses. I didn't want to gloss over this because of the coronavirus, but it, because it, it is there, if you look at verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, probably in context, there are two parts to this challenge to be hospitable that Peter has in view. Uh, you know, because we have the law of six at the moment, don't we? Which will probably be replaced quite quickly. But the first had to do, in Peter, with where the church met. When the churches in a region were assembled, they first met in their homes. So Romans 16, verse 3, Paul tells the Romans to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, greet also the church in their house. And the same language in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, Colossians 4, verse 15, Philippians 2. For some in the churches... The call to be hospitable actually meant the call to have a congregation in their house. Lord's Day by Lord's Day gathered for ministry and worship in their own homes. And many do that all over the world. You can imagine the burden that would be. Not to mention the target that person would be painting on their own back. If regularly the church was gathered in their house for worship under persecution. So Peter has to exhort them to practice hospitality without grumbling, be willing. So that's the first aspect of hospitality. It was linked to the church meeting in their homes. But the other aspect of hospitality common in those days was that many believers were displaced from their homes. They had to move from place to place and often flee in persecution. They needed a place to land. So the churches are exhorted to practice hospitality and to provide a safe haven for persecuted believers. But whatever the circumstance, it is clear that for Peter, a normal expression of Christian love in the fellowship of the church is the practice of hospitality. It would be wonderful if we could literally make, I was going to say, you know, like, like as an application, that we would open our homes and invite one another to have a meal with us, a simple meal with us. It's actually very, very helpful. It would be an opportunity to turn off the television, instead to give people your attention, to sit around a table to feast and laugh and pray and talk about Jesus. I long for the opportunity to be able to do that. But I think it's something that and I felt too, too often too much that what we can try and accomplish with a programme and a schedule would actually start to happen organically and spontaneously and would be the stronger and better for it. If we could simple, simply recover this basic pattern of regular, grumble-free, sacrificial hospitality in the life of the local church. Now, as I said, I wondered about this whole point in preparation, in light of the days that we live in. But I think it's important. So I think it's important to say how we handle ourselves, how we treat one another, 
and how we would as believers use our homes and our time. And finally, how we are to do ministry, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I found this simultaneously immensely encouraging and challenging and convicting. Here's the encouragement. Verse 10, each has received a gift. Christian brother and sister, the Lord has given you a gift to use for his glory in the fellowship of God's people. It might not be up front, but if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a ministry. If you are a believer, you have a ministry. Ministry is not the domain of the professionals. Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God has given gifts to the church to use in his service. Many of you have the gift of encouragement. And people like that are the glue in a congregation. What an asset you are when you use that gift that God has given you faithfully, diligently and quietly. There is an encouragement. We have gifts. There's a challenge. Because if Peter says, if you have a gift, guess what? You're called to use it. Not to get a reputation for yourself, not to climb the ladder, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you're gifted for any kind of ministry, your gift is the donation of God's grace. They're not given to make you look good or to make me look good. They're not given to make us feel better about ourselves. Our gifts are not tools to improve our self-esteem. They're given to us to steward wisely in the service of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a gift, it is not for you. It is for me. And mine is for you. Use your gifts, Peter says, as a steward in God's household. That is to say, as a servant accountable to the master of the house for what you have done with the grace he has given. It's the parable of the talents. So don't bury the resources given. Don't, you, don't be, be, be quick to encourage. It is the glue that holds the body together. Multiply by using in the master's service. We're not permitted to coast in the kingdom. There's no retiring of the gifts. There's no place for passivity. You do not get to say someone else will do it. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if the Lord has gifted you, he has called you to use your gifts in the service of one another. And Peter mentions two big categories of gifts into which most of the gifts we find in the New Testament fall. The speaking gifts and the serving gifts. If you are to speak in God's service, speak as the oracles of God. We are to be a herald declaring his word to the world clothed with his authority. Speak God's way, word in God's way. If you're to serve, 
serve by the strength that God supplies. So if you use your gifts in the service of one another, this is how you avoid burning out. You cling to this promise. You say with the hymn writer, I am weak but thou art mighty. Guide me with thine outstretched hand, bread of heaven. Feed me till I want no more. And he will, because that is the promise. Serve in the strength of God. And as you serve in the strength of God, he gets the glory and not you. And that is the design of the whole chapter. The great objective of everything he has been saying in verse 11. Why do we do all of this? In light of the end. This is how we handle ourselves. We're to be characterised by sober-mindedness. So that we may pray with earnestness and persistence. We're to love one another. Love one another. Sincerely. Earnestly. And we would love to practice hospitality, opening our lives and our homes and our hearts to one another. So maybe while we can't physically put this into practice in a way that we would like, in our hearts, put this into practice. And do it without complaint or grumbling, not as a burden, but as a joy. And use what gifts we have for service, clinging to his strength and the supplies of his grace. And why do we do it? It's there in the Bible. In order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the point of all the one another in, in verses 7 to 11, is the glory of God through Jesus Christ before the watching world. I truly believe that Peter wants the world to look at Lake Road Chapel and to see an embassy of heaven. A colony of the new creation where people forgive one another. Where people serve one another. Where people do ministry together. Ordinary, flawed, broken sinners. That's me. But look at what grace is doing among us. Look at what God is doing. Look at what Jesus Christ is accomplishing in our midst. Peter's whole goal is to make us a colony of heaven. Elect exiles who display to the world the power of grace in the way that we live. And in the words that we say. So may God make it so. Even among us. To the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.